welcome everybody who is joining us. Uh, as you know, the podcast is called Bodhi Speak, and we have here today a super special guest. We have with us Robert uh, Nashua Foley. Uh, Robert is, and I hope I'm pronouncing this correct, correctly, is Passamaquoddy. Uh, That's Native, correct. Great. Native American descent, indigenous people up in Maine, correct? Yes. And uh, Robert is also formerly a Navy SEAL. Uh, for those of you who don't know the Navy SEALs, they're some of the most uh, mentally tough, fiercest warriors ever uh, created in the military. Just some of the most fierce people you can come across. And uh, and so Robert's background, although uh, extends far beyond the military as well, he's also that of a nature survivalist. And today he's a nature uh, preservationist. His current lifestyle includes gentling horses. He's an avid transcendental meditation practitioner. Uh, a student of Tai Chi and Qigong, as well as a servant leader assisting those in need. He does tons of work for veterans. He's done a lot of healing work with horses. And uh, he reached out to me actually several years ago because uh, some of the work that I do is sound meditation and sound healing with the rab drums. And uh, Robert was really interested in and just kind of starting to do more sound work, incorporating that into the healing work he does because he does so many different um, modalities of healing with different groups of people. And his story is just absolutely incredible. I was doing some research about it online. I'm going to have him share all about it. But some of the obstacles that he's gone through as being a Navy SEAL and the uh, the pain and, and the difficulty and the adversity he's had to face and then the way he's been able to overcome it and then use it as a way to better himself in the world and help bring a lot of healing and compassion in the world is one of the most beautiful things. So. I'm just really excited to have you here today, Rob. Thank you so much for coming on. It's great to talk with you, and thank you for doing this. I appreciate it a lot. Uh, Jerry, I, I really appreciate the opportunity, and like you said, I, I have, we have uh, known each other uh, for a few years, and uh, I'll say this, uh, Jerry, uh, I've always felt connected to you telepathically, meaning that I could think your name, and right after saying your name, I'd actually have a conversation with you. Sure. You're not here, but I'm having the conversation anyway, and I know it's reaching you. And I know that uh, if someone said to me, hey, uh, how long has it been since you spoke to Jerry Walsh? Or when are you going to speak to Jerry Walsh? My reply would always be, when it's time. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, when it's time. Um, well, you gave a, a wide spectrum there. Um, and, uh, you know, thinking of starting somewhere in the middle of starting at the end or starting at the beginning. And it's, it's probably uh, easier for me to always begin at the beginning. Sure, please. Um, you know, I came from a... Uh, um, really dense, and I mean a heavy populated Irish, immigrant Irish family from Boston. And a lot of uncles, a lot of aunts, and I grew up in an Italian neighborhood, so I was sort of a minority. Mm -hmm. Um, But my uncles were uh, uh, military, World War II, uh, also motorcycle cops, you know, and and, uh, the uncle that was the motorcycle cop, he was was cooler than anything. So we thought, you know, riding his Harley in the 60s and 70s. Uh, and he was cool. And he was a big, big guy, World War II veteran. I uh, didn't talk much. <clears throat> he might say my name, and that's about, that's about it. Uh, but I, I grew up in this family. It was a, uh, uh, my father was one of 11, and he was the youngest. He never knew his father from Ireland. Mm. Uh, my uncle from Ireland came over here, uh, served in World War I, my grandfather did. And um, he only came to this country because he accidentally pushed a wall over on top of his brother in Ireland and, and killed him. 
and decided Ooh. I better get out of town oh, yeah, yeah. and came to the United States and was given an offer. Uh, we'll deport you or raise your right hand and time to go in uh, and fight in World War One, the Great War, which he did. Wow. Uh, he had a he had a very, very tough upbringing. I, I, I look back and I saw my grandfather's rap sheet when he was 11 years old uh, in Ireland and um, in jail at 14 and 17. I'm thinking, wow, this kid must have been a a bad kid. Um, and then he had all these children, my father being the youngest uh-huh. out of all the children. My father was, um, uh, was probably most like him over all the other siblings and he had never met him before. So that's a pretty, that's a pretty tall order, but it's not in a positive light. It's a very negative light. Hmm. So I grew up with a, uh, a monster of a uh, uh, father and no one likes to hear this part of of the beginning, but there's always a beginning, whether you like it or not, or it's it's dark or light, or it, it is what's handed to you. And I, at a very young age, I often ask myself, uh, God, why did you why did you do this to me? Mm. And he said, because I believed you could handle it. I mean, even at seven, eight years old. But the uh, it was a brutal lifestyle with my father. Um, and uh, remember, he's a, from a large family connected to um, city police. And uh, my brother passed away. My brother was at the hands of my father. And um, I carried that for many, many years, my lost mm. brother and my father getting away with it and uh, witnessing it. Um, so this was a very traumatic thing for me at six years old, seven years old. Mm-hmm. Um, it was brutal. Uh, bottom line, it was brutal. Not to get into details. Um, it, you know, someone says, well, how, how brutal could it be? Take your imagination as far as you want to take it. That's how brutal it was. Hmm. But when I got out, um, I was homeless for a couple of years. That's all. Um, um, finished high school, living in different places and decided, uh, if I really wanted some sort of opportunity, um, I didn't have a place to live. Uh, I didn't have a job or I had a job, but it was in a mill. And that was, that was not a future. It was just not a future. And I was working in this since I was 15 years old. Mm. Um, so in the service, I went and uh, moving it forward a bit, you know, the regular routine of going in the service. Uh, I went in during Vietnam, the end of Vietnam, and I was actually expecting to go to Vietnam. Mm. And uh, after my first assignment on the West Coast, they said, you're going to the new Vietnam, which is the Middle East. Mm. So off I go at 18, 19 years old. And I get to the Middle East and we're the first Americans there uh, because the British had just left this very small compound. And there's about 40 of us. And uh, I showed up and they said, go find a place to live. And I was like, wait, wait a minute. You know, do, do you have a room for me? You know, there's a small, small compound I realized, but and they said, oh no, this is just a transition spot when you come in. We transition you and we tell you to go out and find a place to live. And that was a that was a very uh, life changing moment for me to become aculturized in a society I had no experience with. And were you already part of the Navy SEALs at this point or was this in a different branch of the military? This is a different branch. I okay. went in as a construction electrician sent over to the Middle East, a, a pretty hostile area, actually a very hostile area in the Middle East and uh, couldn't quite understand why we would be uh, sent there. Um, But in that short 12, 13 months while I was there, uh, we had three or four roadside attacks. Now, keep in mind, we couldn't 
we were there under friendly conditions. In fact, that was one of the conditions put on the United States. If we allow you in here, no signs of aggression, no weapons, no anything. Uh, put them away. You? Put them away and block them up, which we did. Where were you in the Middle East exactly? Uh, Bahrain. Just Bahrain, okay. Yeah, I was in Bahrain. I had flown into, originally flown into Lebanon, which was having a civil war at the time. And then I flew into Bahrain. And that's sort of a, a banker's capital of, of the Middle East. It's, it's just littered with banks. A mm. uh, lot of money flowing in and out. And um, I worked on a little satellite station about 10 miles away from that compound, climbing towers, uh, hundreds of towers out over the ocean. And these towers went up into a little 12 by 12 pan at the top, about 300 feet up in the air. So I would climb a hand over fist up th uh, maybe halfway and then the rest of the way, 300 feet and then belt off. Nowhere from start to the top did I belt off. You just would climb to the top and belt off and sitting on that 12 by 12 plate, uh, examining uh, its condition and the, uh, and the things connected to it, and then climbing back down and doing this day in and day out, and then having to travel back over the bridge without weapons, uh, without protection. Uh, and it just basically one day just exploded. We had a roadside attack and um, that involved my uh, teammate of mine who was killed. And then we had a couple more and that and the stories are actually crazy, Jerry. Um, you know, we were trying to cross a bridge that was under construction and we had uh, vehicles trying to ram us off the bridge out into the ocean. So it would have been a, wow. about an 80 foot fall into the ocean. And we're fighting to stay on the bridge. Uh, vehicles clashing into each other. We get to the other side and it just funnels down to a, a group of hundreds and hundreds of people. And they just swarmed the vehicle, dragged us out. And it was local uh, uh, military representatives there from, uh, from that area, from Bahrain, that basically drug us off and put us in protective custody. Uh, had they not shown up, I probably wouldn't be having this conversation with you. Wow. Um, they released us. And several months later, we had the, uh, the king's nephew fly back from the, he was flying back to Bahrain from the United States. He had attended Ivy League schools here in the States for a few years. So he was basically uh, westernized in, in a very strong way with philosophy and culture. And he went back to Bahrain to see his grandfather and he assassinated him. And assassinated his, his uncle, the king. Uh, the, whole, the whole land, the country became locked down. And there were, there were many rumors uh, floating around the United States. It was a conspiracy. The United States had to be involved. Next thing I knew, I'm called back to this very small compound with about 28 other young men. And we're marching with weapons to the weapons at the ready, marching to our gate in V formation because we had received a teleticket uh, sort of communication, teletape, that we were going to be overrun by thousands. And... You know, I'm 19. I'm thinking, I think I think this is where I die. Um, and we did that for almost two and a half days, almost like the third day, uh, because we didn't know when the wave was going to come. And then the wave went away, Jerry. It, it didn't happen. And I had such an, uh, enough happen to me over there with roadside attacks and uh, being a wanted person myself, um, the commanding officer. It just gave me two choices. He said, if you stay here, you're going to die. And if you, so I'm ordering you to leave tomorrow uh, morning, a flight out, or you'll be, if you don't, you'll be leaving in a body bag. Now those are his words. Right. So I said, well, where do I go from here? 
And he said, that's the million dollar question. You're, you're too hot. You've been involved in too much here and you're only 19, 20 years old. So we've put out your billet to probably 40, 50 locations and no one wants you. No one. And I, I was speechless. And this commanding officer says, so based on that, I'm going to give you two choices. I'm going to let you get out of the military on a general discharge. You just don't respect authority figures. And I think maybe trouble draws, you draw trouble to yourself. <laughs> um, everything that happened there, I must have somehow created it. And so um, he said, but I, if, you, if you don't want to take the general discharge, uh, we'd like to send you to an individual that's interested in you. And I said, who is it? And he said, his name is Richard Marcinko. Mm. And he's on the East Coast. He's, he's uh, basically, you'd be sitting out at the beach and swimming a little bit, catching some suntan rays. And I, I thought there had to be a hitch to this. And I said, what's the catch, sir? And he said, no catch, but you have to make a choice now. Um, a, a general discharge or take these orders and go see Mr. Richard uh, Marcinko. Mm -hmm. And I said, I think I'd rather sit in the sun and catch a tan, sir. And I had, I had no idea where I was going. And I showed up at SEAL Team 2 on the East Coast huh. to greet Commander Marcinko. And he was about probably the scariest man I'd ever seen in my life, <laughs> in my entire life. It, it's, no. it's, uh, it's, I'm sorry, just probably really quick. It's funny, no. that, uh, not funny, but interesting that it's Richard Marcinko because, you know, I, I told you on the phone a couple of years ago, my grandfather was in the Frogman UDT in the yes. Korean War, which is the precursor of Navy SEALs. And, and my dad, I remember growing up, would, would read a bunch of Red Cell books, I think written by uh, Richard <laughs> Marcinko. That's correct. So that's just an interesting connection. Cause <laughs> I, I mean, I grow up, I grow up with these images of seeing his book all over the house all the time. So, uh, now, I have just, to say, just to share that, go on. <laughs> I have to, I have to share this with you. I'm not sure if I have yet, but your father's work, precursor work to the work we do is no different, Jerry, no different. Uh, your father, it's, it, you know, I don't know here today, not here today. If he oh, was grandfather, here grandfather. He, grand, he, grandfather. Yeah, he passed away in 2011, actually. Now he could, and I know he already knows this. Um, he is part of the family. He's part of the family. In fact, your grandfather is actually revered, revered hmm. by hundreds and hundreds of Navy SEALs. And the reason he's revered is because without him, there may not be us. Hmm. Without your grandfather, who was the initial uh, engineering, the, the building block to this whole UDT Navy SEAL your grandfather was the cornerstone of it. Hmm. And we call those people plank owners, generally cornerstone or plank owners. And that means they're, when you see them, you, you give them respect, uh, a gesture, a hello. Uh, but when you walk by them, they know, and you know, and especially you know that you're looking at a, you're looking at someone that's so revered. Mm -hmm. And you give them the respect that they absolutely deserve. And we hope that tradition transcends up so uh, that young SEALs today in their 20s and mid-20s and late 20s would hopefully look at me and say, hey, uh, Rob, brother, you know, see, th there's that word brother. It's still there. Uh, and I may not even know this guy. And it may we may have 40 years, 45 years between us from the time I was a SEAL to the time he is now presently a SEAL. Mm. So 
Richard Marcinko was my stop and Richard Marcinko had a plan for me. And uh, he came out and he said, I know you. And I was defenseless. He said, I know all about you. I know about your daddy. I know about your family. I know about the alcoholism. I know about the abuse. I, and I, I was breaking down in front of him, trying to stay strong, wondering how he knew so much about me. But then I realized later on down the road that that was their job. That was their entire core of a Navy SEAL is to gather information, to be a master at information collection right. and, to, and to analyze it. Um, got a meeting with someone, not until I know everything about that person. And that's, the, that's pretty much the way the majority of them were. Um, he kept me at SEAL Team 2 for six months. I uh, wasn't sure what his objection uh, objective was in doing that, but he had an objective. And um, it was to take this raw kid from a background. And a lot of the Navy SEALs, they were like, why are we taking him in? Why are we doing this? Look, he's, he's, a, he's, he's nothing but trouble. He grew up in the run and Dick, Richard Marcinko stopped them all and said, stop for a second. Where did you, John, and you, Mike, and you, Tom, and you, Gary, where did you come from? And he's putting it back on them. And they're thinking, my goodness gracious, uh, this kid's got a very similar background to most of us. So um, they, they knew I was an all-star runner. They knew I was a state champion runner. And I've been a state champion runner for three years in a row, uh, setting records. And um, uh, as a kid, I think I was setting records running from the police. Um, but but as uh, in the in the service and after my uh, high school days, uh, they knew of my running uh, uh, background and they said, don't let him run. Do not let him run. Hold him back. So they, they held me back. Billy Renton was a watch over me. He was like a guardian, like a, like a big father. And I said, why do I need you? <laughs> and he said, without me, you may not survive here. Hmm. Somebody here may take you out. And I, I didn't know what, how much truth there was to that. And uh, so he was the captain of the 1980 bobsled, winter bobsled team in 1980 up in uh, Lake Placid. Um, so we're running on the beach one day after months of running, being forced to stay in the back. And he just, and, and did Richard Marcinko that day had told Billy Renton, let him run today, but, but make sure our best runner is at least a couple miles ahead of him. So I want him to, I want him to feel defeated. I want him to be defeated and take him down two or three notches. We know he's like a super runner, but let's take him down. So when they released me and they said, uh, Bill said, go. And I said, what? And he screamed, go. I knew what that meant. And I took off and I only took off, off after one thing. That was the guy in the front. And I knew he was way ahead of me. So make a long story short, I passed him, left him, got back, showered and stood on the outside quarter deck dressed with my arms folded. I was making a statement back to them right. and I would pay heavily for it. I would pay heavily for that. So uh, later that week, we had a one mile ocean swim in December on the Atlantic Ocean with just short little uh, farmer briefs, that's it, mm -hmm. um, and swim top. And um, we always pair up, but nobody would pair up with me. Not a single person. Everybody got in the ocean. It was a very, very difficult day that day. I remember it well. It was very cold, it was wet, it was raining, and the waves were very, very choppy. 
and I swim out about a quarter mile and then swim a mile, a mile, uh, along, along the, uh, uh, the sand dunes. And they all got out of the water. They were way ahead of me. They got out, they got on the bus and I'm still stuck way out there by myself. And they drove off with all sorts of, uh, lovely words, uh, expressed out the windows. Mm -hmm. And, um, I could have got out of the water at that point, Jerry, um, but I decided, uh, no, that's not the way to do it. And I finished about another three-quarter mile of that swim. I got out and I hobbled back. And the whole way back, Jerry, I was so angry. I, was, I hated these guys. I hated them. Um, I was cussing all the way back. And when I got to the gate to the compound, there were about 40 guys all dressed, standing on the outside quarter deck with a cup of coffee. And they raised their cups and they screamed my name. And when they screamed my name, they, you know, they just screamed, Huya, Rob Foley. And they screamed it all together really loud. And something went right through me. And uh, they, when they said that, they just dispersed and went, up, went about their job. I guess they had a message for me. Hmm. And Dick Marcinko came up and uh, he walked up behind me and he said, hey, you're part of this family now. Um, so my training continued for another uh, three or four months. I was sent to Bud's out in California. Right. And Richard just said to me, Richard Marcinko said, uh, <clears throat> don't come back here uh, uh, unless you've made it through training. Mm. That's the, you, you just stay low, do what you have to do, be the best runner you can be, to be the best at everything you can be, but keep a low profile. And um, like they didn't want you to they didn't want you to tell the other uh, recruits that you were already kind of on a certain level welcomed in the SEAL team, too. No, no, no. In fact, that was that was a cancerous move. And Dick Marcinko, when I left uh, SEAL Team 2, the men of SEAL Team 2 and Dick Marcinko gave me a SEAL Team 2 plaque, a beautiful big SEAL Team 2 plaque, appreciation from the men of SEAL Team 2. And then they did something to me is maybe you could call it a really, uh, a really tough initiation, but they did something that was pretty tough uh, to say goodbye to me. And it wasn't a hug. Just trust me when I tell you it wasn't a hug. Um, but they, okay. they, they, and, and I, when, I, when I was done with that, and I was heading to California. Uh, I really loved those guys. I really did. But now I had something, a very tall order in front of me. And I got out to California, about 185 guys in my class day one. And one, one of the guys in my class, I'll never forget him. He died probably about three years ago. One of my closest friends. Um, he was the world champion uh, arm wrestler uh, on Wide World of Sports. Howard Cosell had interviewed him. And he was the world middleweight champ of arm wrestling. So he, had, he was just sort of like a, a freak of nature, you know, and I never seen anybody built like this. And uh, we, we went through, uh, we went through six months of hell. Uh, well, we go through hell week, which is we're awake for seven days, six and a half days, no sleep at all, right. maybe 45 minutes over six days. Um, you hope to reach automatic right away. And automatic is when you start to hallucinate and the mind takes over the body, the body's no longer in charge. And so you're on a wild trip. I mean, an absolute, just, just lost. And you just follow that, uh, that automatic stage. And it gets you through the last, uh, maybe three, four, you try to hit it as soon as you can, because this is very painful stuff. Uh, 24 seven day and night soaking wet all day long. Um, but then you've got, when you finish that, you get a little, little less than six more months of training. But with, you um... hope to I have a question. Uh, just about so with Hell Week, it's from a little bit I know. I guess I mean it's it's a lot of like you're constantly exposed to the cold. You're lifting oh. the heavy boats and you're lifting the logs. You're not sleeping. Like not sleeping, not what, sleeping, not sleeping. You, and you and you just 
you're losing your sense of uh, logic uh-huh. and and you actually have to use something beyond your sense of uh, your thinking capability and you have to tie, tap into something that's more of an innate primitive ability uh, an innate primitive survival ability um, of just surviving and um, uh, you want to do it together as a group um, but most importantly you're watching yourself and being very careful that you are uh, able to make it the next day one day at a time we say Right. Uh, because and you could break your leg that night. You could die that night. We had a couple of guys die a couple of classes before me uh, on night swims. Mm-hmm. Um, they might grab you up in the middle of the night and take you and a swim buddy and drop you off in the middle of the ocean at two o'clock and give you a bearing and say, OK, swim in. And if you swim really, really hard, you might make it into shore in time for breakfast. <laughs> so. so. <laughs> yeah, just think my, they were made mostly, basically, uh, basically uh, most of these were mind games. A lot of these were mind games. It was being able to control the thought processes, the fear thought processes that we typically all experience right. and to, to have it thrown in your face and then have to decide in a split second how you're going to deal with it. You know, there's no time to prepare. The next thing you know, you're in the middle of the ocean and it's pitch black and you've been thrown into a kelp bed. And deliberately. So when you hit that kelp bed, you really can't swim. It's like being in quicksand. Hmm. So you have to know how to swim over kelp. And then look at your buddy and just say, we got one thing to do. We need to kick and we need to swim. And you do. And hopefully you make it in. <laughs> I say, and, hopefully. And what, what do you think is the, like, because I know that's like the dropout rate at that point of, of like hell week is really intense, obviously. But what do you think is the, the differentiating factor between people that make it through and then people that just decide to quit because it's too much? Like, what do you, what, what did you observe doing that? Or you're like, like, well, I can give you some average, I I could probably give you some average percentages. Um, Just after the first week of hell week, you know, I was lying in a bed and I had lost about probably 21 pounds and most of my toenails were gone. Uh, I think I had three toenails left. Um, uh, I looked like uh, my lips couldn't open or close. They were bleeding. And uh, my skin was falling off my face. So, I mean, um, I had a friend came in who... Just from the cold and the salt water? Like, what was it that was... Exposure uh, 24-7 for six and a half days of salt continuously being wet in the sun, baking... Right. with salt water on your face and then and and no time to really recover there's no you know we'll give you some time to recover everyone take two minutes yeah, yeah it's not really <laughs> not really no <laughs> so <laughs> so th- that was our recovery i remember one time uh, paddling across the bay around uh, midnight and i swear there was uh seals because we worked and trained with dolphins and seals uh-huh. And there were seals uh, swimming alongside me and I kept reaching out and touching them. And I was telling one of my uh, boat buddies, Hey, we got the seals swimming beside us. And he said, no, that, no, you know, get it together, get it together. You're hallucinating. There are no seals. And sure enough, they were all around me. And I reached out and I went overboard and one of my guys grabbed me just by my belt buckle and pulled me back in wow. uh, because I, I really thought I was what I was seeing was actual uh, realistic uh, seals in the ocean with me. And uh, so you get through that. You get through the uh, you get through training for the next five and a half months. But our training was very different, Jerry, than it is today. 
a lot of the training that we did back then is, is outlawed today. Um, you, you just cannot be administered. Um, we, being water tortured was one of our primary training um, uh, uh, the training guides that we would go through and experience ourselves. Um, Can you give an example example of like what what water torture? Because I know there's like waterboarding that's became, yeah, it's, but it's it's waterboarding. Okay, right. so yeah, waterboarding would be our training part of our training. So we would watch how it was done on one of our teammates. And then, and then um, instructors would say, who would like to go next? <laughs> well, when you watch an individual drown right. and pass out and they look like they've passed, maybe dead, uh, they're slapped and revived. And then they go, and then the wet towel goes right over their face again and they get wow. water tortured again. Wow. Um, you know, I had a, I had a, there was a guy, oh, geez. I don't even know if I should even say this. Um, I, I, there was a there was a gentleman that uh, was not doing so well on a morning run, and in a in a particular individual, a high profile, extremely high profile individual, and that's all I'll say about that. Uh, pushed him because he wasn't running fast enough. He was way behind, and uh, when he pushed him, he also threw himself on the back of this guy with his knee into his back, hmm. and grabbed his ankle and pushed it up over his head. Compound fracture. Oh. Compound fracture. Oh. You know the biggest bone in your body, oh. and blood squirt out on the sand you know mm -hmm. um it, it was shocking for me and and i started to turn to uh, assist and it was like get moving um of course this individual was uh ambulance to a hospital and i think the words shared with us or sh that we later got back retrieved were that uh, the individual in our class just looked at the end the instructor this extremely high profile structure you can't be any higher than this uh he just said i'll be back wow. and this big monster of a guy said i believe you hmm. and the guy did come back and go through buds and get through buds and become a seal wow. um i've done similar things myself um you know i i i got through buds i served uh in many many places around the world um uh I, I got out and started my own engineering company. A lot of things probably in 10 years after I got out, I uh, got my degrees in business and also followed it up with engineering uh, and started that engineer company, uh, worked with the Navy as, as one of their engineers. Um, but I remember one day, I uh, uh, military related, I, um, I severed my Achilles and I had a run to do and it was a very important run. And they said, I'm sorry, you're disqualified. And I said, you can't disqualify me. I'm number one on the swim. Uh, my, my academics are extremely high and you can't disqualify me. And they said, you don't recover from this in, in, in two weeks or three months. This is a six month injury. And um, uh, so they said, we'll give you a month. So like that guy in the back of the vehicle that said, I'll be back. Um, I had the cast on my leg uh, around my foot for six months, and I knew I had to start running immediately, mm -hmm. like next day, because I only had 30 days to make this time trial. So I broke open the cast and took it off, mm. and I hobbled around the, the block, and the pain was the most excruciating pain I've ever experienced in my life. And what would normally take me maybe 10 minutes to make it around the block would take me two hours, two and a half hours. And then over time, 
three, two weeks into it, three weeks into it, I'm doing it in 10 minutes. I'm hobbling, but I'm doing it. And then I had a certain time and just days before that uh, time trial, um, I met the time required. And this was sort of an impossible thing, but mind over matter, Jerry, that's what we were, we were taught and trained right. was mind over matter. So I went to the timeout uh, trials and they sent uh, probably about 30 witnesses, um, uh, officers that were going to determine uh, if I made the time trial or not. And they said, this is ridiculous. He's not going to be able to run a hundred yards. Mm -hmm. So I did meet the time. I did make the mile uh, time uh, trial. And they said, uh, don't know what to say. Just got to accept it that he's done it. And he had the will to do it. We try to be like that. Um, and uh, then there was conflict for me. There was conflict based on who I was during those years. Uh, what I did during those years and how I was after those years as a person. And I didn't really like what I was seeing. You mean within, um, I, in regards to like just the military action in particular? Or? Right. I, I, well, it, these, these skills and these experiences were attached to me. Mm -hmm. There was no, there was no taking off my jacket and, and we'll call the jacket my SEAL team years and just taking the jacket and placing it elsewhere. It was it was attached to me permanently, so it it had effects on me in my in my daily life. Um, here I am, a combat veteran, and I'm back in school again, in my mid twenties, late twenties, um, and you know I was like, uh, this is different, this is really different. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm thrown into the civilian world. And people really looked at me um, as a, an oddity, um, just uh, not sure how to define this guy, but, you know, get to know him from a distance, <laughs> you know, something like that. Right. And, yeah. and that really wasn't the case. Uh, it was a very friendly guy, uh, but maybe uh, certainly short fused and um, for being guarded probably because of where I came from. Um, but got through the college years and started my company. And um, I started um, feeling, you know, I was, I was called back uh, to the Middle East to help some uh, contractors um, at 50 years old. Uh, this is after running a successful engineering firm, being part of the Navy's engineering team. Um, I got a call to assist uh, in a couple of ways in Iraq. And this was after the, uh, uh, teammates of mine that had been uh, assassinated in Fallujah and hung from the bridge in Fallujah. I carried a lot of guilt for that because some of those guys asked me to, um, assist them in getting into certain contracting outfit groups. And I knew them well, the groups, I knew the owners, I knew the president, I, I knew these groups well. And, um, uh, so I could make a phone call and the next day these guys would be going. Um, of course, I'd always say to him in the beginning, are you sure you want to do this? Yeah. Really think about it. You have a family, you have children and a lot of them would do it for the money and a lot of them would die. And so to see some of those ones I personally touched and was connected to that day in Fallujah, um, having been murdered and drugged through the streets and burnt and hung from the bridge, it, it over, it just, uh, it unnerved me. 
And uh, next thing I know, I was involved in um, Middle East exhibitions in the in Saudi Arabia, in Amman, Jordan, in Abu Dhabi. And I was tied in with a group uh, that made armored vehicles, and we were shipping the armored vehicles all throughout different provinces in, in Iraq. And so now here I am again. I'm in the thick of it. Uh, I'm in the real thick of it, and I'm working uh, indirectly for people like uh, Brigadier John F. Mulholland, um, uh, or more so General Abizade, uh, folks like this who were basically the absolute upper echelon of the Middle East Command, um, General Abizade. So I was back in it, Jerry, and um, I had to get out. And when I did get out, um, I think that's when I really started to uh, ratchet up a bit, I think, in terms of flashbacks, uh, these memories. And I didn't want to associate with them. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to sever the ties. And um, only until probably around 2012, um, and that's about the time you and I were hooking up and connecting, or 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. I think it goes back that far, Jerry. It's more than a few years. Um, you were not long after a very pivotal part in my life of uh, when I was collapsing and falling down and, and they rushed me to the hospital and they said that you have one of the worst traumatic brain injuries we have ever seen. You should not be able to walk or talk. Was was there something specific that had caused the traumatic brain injury? Was that from your time in Bahrain or was that uh, no, a I seal? No, I think that or? it was as a seal, um, but it was probably uh, uh, highly linked to my very last assignment which was a uh, was a vacation to me. I mean, to, to all the things I, I had been through or the places I had gone to or got myself involved with, this was an absolute sunbathing uh, vacation. So I thought. Right. And this very, very top, top secret mission was about, uh, about 18, 21 guys, I don't know exactly, uh, to be... Uh, shipped into the Anawitok Islands and channels, hundreds of islands. And we would go in and our primary job was to sleep on a 100-foot demo boat and to, in the morning, lay out strands. And I don't mean strands like inch wide. I'm talking about 10 inches around of uh, Mark 8 hose, uh, female and male ends. So we're cooking, hooking a female with a male end, stretching them out 300 yards and we're blowing up the bays and we're blowing up the uh, the um, uh, the channels between the islands, uh, getting them deeper and spending about 21 days just blowing up all this vast area. Uh, what I didn't know, Jerry, is that uh, that site had been the site for nuclear testing back in the 1950s, uh, where they dropped uh, somewhere roughly around 40 something nuclear bombs there. And these individual bombs were 10 times greater than Nagasaki 10 times greater than Hiroshima. And you think 46 of them and about 20 never detonated. They were just sitting out there. So the local Marshallese people were, were evacuated. Many of them sent to the United States, Arkansas. Um, so when I got there, it was pretty remote. And we continued to do our work for about uh, uh, three weeks, blowing up the bays. And what we were doing is unearthing all the radioactive waste millions of tons of radioactive waste to the surface with uh, isotopes, the deadliest isotopes known to man, uh, strontium-90, cesium-137, and dozens and dozens of other 
isotopes and I'm swimming through it. It's on the surface. Wow. And yeah. It's, it's permeable. It's through my skin. It's in my eyes. It's in my mouth. It's, and I just swim through it day after day after day for about three weeks. It was the deadliest concentration uh, some speak of to be exposed to. And uh, we came back and we went about our lives. Uh, I got out of the service. I did a couple more years, four more years in the reserves. Um, but after the four more years of reserves, I was out. And um, I noticed changes. And in 2012, I spoke of earlier, was a time I collapsed and they saw something they were shocked by. And they told me I had uh, maybe maybe a couple of years. They said 2015, that's it. And uh, it was shocking to me. I had a hard time uh, accepting that, if you can imagine. Hmm. You know, I mean, uh, I can't, you know, someone tells me I can't make a tri tile tri timed run. I'll rip off the cast and do it. Um, right. So yeah, I just I, I just rejected this notion. And um, I sought inside i saw it internally jerry within myself and i did it in a really bad um uh, storm one day and i call it the day of the agreement and i'm um, moving a very large horse a belgian up through the snow from a lower field and in the wind and the noise and the in the in the deep deep snow uh i step into a vacuum and i just stop because i don't feel anything I don't hear anything. My senses are totally shut off and I'm in a vacuum and something kicks in and I'm thinking to myself, it's something much more powerful than me happening right now. And I just looked up and I said, I don't know what's going on. And I've, I've always had this, um, this way about me of talking to people that aren't there. Um, that goes back to my uh, Native American heritage and my grandmother's a little boy. And she said I was a healer mm -hmm. and that uh, um, I felt other people's pain. I felt other people's suffering, but I could also, I had another skill she said, and that was I could see into the future. And this was shared with me when I was oh, about 10 years old uh, from my great grandmother. And um, so it, uh, I decided to go within myself and to get in contact with some of my tribal people members and spend time with them, which I did and still do. Um, I just wish the pandemic would go away. Um, yeah. And this is, uh, we do things, uh, my transcendental meditation, my freestyle Qigong Tai Chi, all these things are really most importantly, my transcendental meditation and my horses. You mentioned something earlier, Jerry, and that was uh, something about music. And people ask me if music is part of my life. I say it's, it's an enormous part of my life. Frequency, vibrational energy, uh, all these energies uh, play into our lives. And we're part of that energy. We're actually liquid form, part of that energy, uh, whether we realize it or not. And um, I just uh, decided to allow that in. And I remember that conversation in the vacuum that day in that storm and uh, being angry, very angry. What, a, what happened to me? Why is this happening to me? Hmm. And the voice just said, uh, it's not about you. And I thought to myself, that's the stupidest response I ever heard. <laughs> and, and so I got, I got a little, little more angry and I, I stormed off, no pun intended. And the, uh, I'm back into the wind, the sound, the, the wailing and the trees bending and the snow blinding me. 
and I got about 40 yards and boom, another vacuum. And this time I hear the exact same words, which absolutely almost send me uh, like in an, in a state, I can't believe of it's not about you more direct and more, a little stronger this time. And I said, if it, it but I'm dying. If I don't, uh, if it's not about me, uh, who's it about? And he said, I want you to focus on others in need. And I said, what about me? I, I don't know if I'll be here tomorrow. Mm-hmm. He said, you help others in need and I'll walk with you. I'll walk with you. And I wasn't, I thought I understood that. I, I think, and, and I, and I was correct. Uh, my first, uh, uh, my third thought process on that when I first heard it um, was correct. And I took it as an agreement and I stepped out. And that was the day I said, uh, I'm going to do something with these horses. I'm going to share these horses with people. Um, so you talked about music. And even to this day, 12 years later, uh, or 10 years later, almost, um, I share uh, these frequencies and harmonics with people, but I first use it on my horses. I use it on my horses because my horses have a much higher energy field than humans. So I can see the signals faster from a horse than I can from say you, Jerry, or from another human fellow. Mm -hmm. And when I experiment with sounds and instruments and, uh, and even movement, and all the horses congregate around me and they study me or they listen and they just in a circle and I may be dancing. I may be uh, freestyle Qigong. I may be chanting. I may be using an instrument and they just will draw right into this and just stand there and just soak it in. Um, I've done other things in, the, in terms of sentient communication with animals, um, free thought exchange. So um, I will test a horse just by sharing my thoughts. And if I get the response I want, we'll try it 10 more times. We'll try it 50 more times. And if I get the same response from my thought transferring to my horse or horses, and I get the same response, they're actually hearing me. They actually see what I want. I'm asking in my mind, but they see it as an image. If I think I've got an apple for you, they don't hear the word apple. They see the apple. And that's the amazing thing about big animals like this. So when I see how they're stimulated uh, through their sensory codes and how sensitive they are to it, I then say to myself, I wonder if I could share this with people. I wonder if I could share in the forest as a certified Shinrin Yoku guide, if I could take them on walks like I do with my horses and, and my horses and I have the exchange back and forth Um, But if I could do it with people and teach them the multi-multi senses that they have, not just touch, feel, sight, uh, sound, but other other sensories that that we never ever think about, uh, intuitive sense, the heart sense, uh, the imaginary sense, um, the sense of wonderment. And then what I do is I, I create Japanese invitations for these individuals walking through the woods very, very slowly. Uh, it's time to open up an invitation. There's never an exercise. We don't walk far. It's a very slow walk. And I always say to folks, you know, the only, the only requirement I have is you have to keep up with me. And I'm slower than a turtle. Can I, can so, I ask you a, a question before we go sure. too far? Not, or kind of two questions, actually. Absolutely. So, so one is, um, 
how much uh, of do you feel like this? So one, you know, I've been I've been I've been listening a little bit to different seals talk about like Hell Week and the training and things like this. Uh, maybe you're familiar with David Goggins. Uh, yes. Kind of, yeah, I've listened to his story. It's really yes powerful. Yeah. And like what what kind of you were talking like mind over matter because there's something like in the seal training that is. I'm curious if you would agree that it connects you perhaps maybe to something that like would tap you into these additional senses. You know, it does. Do, you, do you feel like that you carry something from the military training that brought you into a place that was actually into a transcendental state of consciousness? Uh, you know, I'm so glad you asked that question, Jerry, because what I'm about to tell you would and, and, and would surprise a lot of people. Um, when I came out of, well, as a child, I was a survivor. Uh, right, I, right. I had picked up adversity. I had, I had to be extremely uh, adversity strong and and be able to adapt uh, to many, many environmental changes and situations at 16 years old. Um, uh, so, and that was a good thing for me, even though the experiences may have been very bad or, or, or very tough situations. They were good for me. Uh, it was a it was a survivor die type mentality. Going into seals, it didn't change much. It was a survivor die, and it really wasn't about uh, doing this for my country. It had nothing to do with that at all. It had to do with someone like yourself standing next to me, and you looking at me and saying, "Don't worry, I got your back. You're going to go home. I'm going to make sure you go home." And I look at you and I say, "Jerry, you're going to go home. I'm going to make sure you go home, and I get you home, and you get me home." And that creates a bond. And if you get me home, Jerry, I would say with some of the uh, team members I have, I've gotten them home a dozen times. They've gotten me home a dozen times. And that, that bond actually grows stronger and stronger. So here's the, here's the answer to your question or my response to your question is that when I left the military, I had this ability to envision. My name, my name Nashua, stands for Firestarter. And Firestarter means that uh, I'm, I'm a pretty valuable person in the tribe. I can see what's coming. Mm. I can see into the future. And when times of trouble are here, I've seen it months before, maybe years before. And that's already happened in my life today many times. I saw the pandemic two, almost two years before it happened. And in the spring of the first year of the pandemic, 2020, I shared with the doctor the next something terrible that's going to dwarf the pandemic. And he said, what is it? I said, I can't tell you. It's too disturbing. And we're in it now. We're already in it. So the, the transference I had from SEAL team, the ability I had was to see into the future as a strategic planning facilitator. I could walk into a situation. I could walk into a manufacturing facility. I could walk around and I could immediately, like a, like a uh, snap photograph, snap images in my head of all the key critical issues that were going on in that environment, bad issues, weak, weak uh, practices. During this time too, were you also, were you, did you still have this connection with your Native American ancestry and uh, ethnicity and the culture of the tribes when you were in the military and then also working business? Or did this, was this something that came to you really when you had the moment in 2012 with the storm and all that? No, I would say that, uh, and that's that's a that's a that's a very good question, timeline question. Um, I had it as a very young boy, um, but my father frowned upon any any discussion about this whatsoever. 
Okay. Uh, my mother was afraid uh, and all the time, constantly, of ever having conversation about it. But my great grand, my grandmother wasn't, and my great grandmother, who knew the family, and and my grandmother, who was taken as a baby uh, in 1910. Um, and she later had two daughters and one of those daughters happened to be my mother. And, um, uh, so th what there was, was a reunion for me, uh, uh, Jerry, uh, I, I was fully tuned in as a young boy to this, but then when I, when I went through the very traumatic times of, uh, um, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17 and homelessness, I kind of disconnected from it. And again, I was trying to survive. I was trying to find a place to sleep. And so a number of years went by, a few years went by, and then the military. And the military wasn't talking much about it and didn't want to hear much about it. No, of course not. No. So, it, it, so or go ahead. Yeah. It was a reunion. You know, it basically, um, uh, I knew about my roots. I knew about my gifts. And I used to practice my gifts in the military, but I never told anyone about it. And um, uh, I would practice the gifts because I had the gifts as a young child and I'd practice the gifts in my early to mid twenties, but I never told people about it because if I did, they would just think I was crazy. Um, and then when I got out of the service, I knew I could continue these, these gifts and these practices, which I practice today. I practice them every single day. And what it does is uh, they open doorways for me, Jerry. Um, I can step through a number of doorways and I'm in a different world altogether. And uh, fortunately I can come and go freely between these doorways. And it happened today. Um, I needed something. I wasn't sure quite what it was. And I was taking a walk uh, and I realized that I needed to go to my woods. I needed to be in the woods. And I had to stop because the thought in my mind walking around this area this afternoon, wondering what is it I need right now? I, I it, it dawned on me, you need to be in the woods. And the sunlight was streaming through these uh, big high grass plain fields this afternoon. And I thought to myself these words, if I were to envision heaven, I would prefer to envision heaven as a forest. Hmm. And, and that was powerful to me. Because when we think about that, if I asked anyone on the spot, envision heaven for me, what do you envision? A lot of folks may just stop and not be able to answer right away. They might have to think, and maybe some folks would say, I'm not sure. But I can, for myself, I can say the words, uh, if I were to envision heaven, I would prefer to envision heaven as a forest. And I can see that now. And that's uh, it's a nice place to go to when you need to go there. And that's why you're doing a lot of work with you do nature walks for people. And you, is it, is it, are you working? What are the groups of people that you've mostly been working with? Have they been veterans or they have been kids no. or it's all it, ages or I, what's the, I've done so much work with veterans. I've had veterans from other foreign countries come here and we've done work together wow. uh, as, as uh, depicted in our movie, uh, uh, artists for peace and freedom where we had a bunch of uh, Danish uh, uh, veteran soldiers come here and they are from Denmark and uh, had to meet me at my farm in Denmark. So Denmark soldiers from Denmark coming to Denmark, Maine. And, uh, uh, but it's, it's wait, a De Denmark. So Denmark is in Maine, but you had soldiers from Denmark come the to country. Denmark, but Denmark in Maine, you said is a uh, place. Yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yes, they, they flew to meet me. They they left. They left Denmark they and they Denmark. came to the United States and they met me in Denmark, Maine. That's funny. Okay. <laughs> yeah, on the on the horse farm. Cool. So I had the ability 
think about it in SEAL team terms of you, it, you have a pre-op uh, meeting before an actual uh, operation. And you talk about everything you're going to do, who's doing what, who's responsible, what sort of fail safe do we have? What kind of backup plan do we have? If everything goes south, what, what's our backup plan? What's our extraction plan? So we would have a pre-op and then we would have the actual mission, generally during the worst weather conditions ever, generally around two, three, three, three o'clock in the morning. And then we come back and hopefully we're all alive and we have a post-op and we talk about it. And I remember one day at a very young age, a commanding officer said to me, Rob, why don't you come out here, come up here. And uh, this is the post-op. And why don't you tell us, tell all of us here what went right, what went wrong. And that was a major, major step for me uh, to be asked to lay out what was right and what was wrong to senior officers uh, and why I was asked, I have no idea. Um, it reminds me of the time here in Maine where I was asked to meet with about eight tribal members and they were elderly. And if you understand Indian culture, uh, elders are invited to elder councils. Mm -hmm. If you're not an elder, you're not part of the council. So I was really curious why I was being asked to the council. And when I got to the council, I listened to uh, different languages and from different tribes. And a lot of them used sign language, which was universal mm -hmm. for them. And um, I was amazed at how they were able to communicate, interact and communicate with just, just through hand signals. And then finally, Carl uh, Two Feathers, who was sort of a stoic leader of the, of the tribes, I think, said to me, Robert, what do you see? And I really didn't want to speak because I had seen a lot and I had been envisioned a lot. I had known about this meeting a good couple of months before and I knew what the issues were. And so I voiced my opinion and I thought I'm going to get in real trouble for this. And I voiced my opinion. And after talking for about a minute, Carl Two Feathers got up and walked out. He just left the circle and walked out. And I thought, I really did it this time. I really did it this time. And Carl Two Feathers went outside and said, creator, who is this person? Where did he come from? Where is he going? Will he return? And what is his, what is his gift? What is his sign? How should I receive him? And he came back in and he said, uh, Robert, I'm going to name you. I'm going to name you in a naming ceremony this afternoon. And I didn't have any uh, uh, opinion about it except to agree. And so the elders went through a ceremony with me that afternoon and I was named Nashua. Mm -hmm. uh, young children do it the best because they go Nashua. <laughs> and that's really how it's pronounced. Um, when I asked Kyle Two Feathers, he said it's a fire starter. It's, a, it's one of the most important people besides the medicine man in the tribe because you can see ahead and you can see what's coming. And then I never saw Kyle Two Feathers again. He went down to Tennessee where his mm -hmm. tribe was. And I talked to him a couple of times on the phone, but relative, I pretty much didn't hear from Carl or have much conversation over five or six years. And he sent, a, he wrote that day he was outside asking creator, who is he? What's he about? Where's he going? He wrote it all down. He, the questions he was asking. And he also gave the answers the day outside asking creator. 
Will he come back? Yes. Will he leave? Yes. Will he go for a long journey? Yes. Is his journey, all these questions. And he wrote these questions down on this log. And then six, seven years later, he mailed it to one of the local tribesmen up here, elders. And he called me and he said, I've known your journey for the last five years. Do you want to know someone else who knows your journey, who's, who has known of your journey? And I said, who? And he says, creator. Creator has been following you the whole way. And I said, how do you know this? And he says, because I have Kyle Twofeather's notes that he wrote seven years ago, six years ago, uh, of your journey and where you were going and what you would be doing and when you would be returning. And you have done every single thing that he predicted or that creator told him would happen. And we created the documentary, A Different Journey, Full Circle. And the title of that, A Different Journey, Full Circle, was Robert Nashua leaving and going, I don't know where, west. And I go west. And I hook up with people in, in, with horses. And I hook up with Native American, different tribes and brothers. And I hook up with uh, Texans. And I also hook up with the Mustang Heritage Mustang Heritage Foundation. Uh, this this cap I wear says uh, uh, Extreme Mustang Makeover, which is a group of us that come down to Texas and we take uh, wild Mustangs and we gentle them. We gentle them. And so I got to... What does that do, mean exactly? I'm, I'm not familiar actually with that term. Well, um, you remember we, t we talked earlier about the sensory codes and I use animals over humans right. because they're just a bigger energy source. And they pick up much more quickly on uh, uh, body language I'm giving off or um, even my smell or my demeanor or my attitude or my smile or not my smile. Or most importantly, what I'm thinking. So they pick all this up. And um, um, so help me help me out here, Jerry. This was. You asked me the question. Just uh, so about about gentling, like I'm not. I'm oh, not gentling. Wait, what? From what exactly does that mean to gentle a Mustang? I'm not. It, it's really that? harnessing their. It's harnessing their energy, Jerry. Uh, I practice equine. Um, um, equine therapy. Uh, yeah, equine therapy, uh, and uh, I do it with horses, not people, and I lay hands uh, around the horse in different positions. I move my hands around, but I never touch the horse. I'm basically just transferring energy. My hands are only a half an inch off the horse. I'm moving into spots where I can, if I move my hand slowly and I know this spot is a spot my hand needs to be and the horse wants me to put it there, I'll hear a sound from the horse. The horse will just let out this big breath of air hmm. and I'll leave my hands there and I will feel the energy flood through me. And I struggled in the early years with this because I, I didn't understand grounding so much. I wasn't that... A proficient in grounding the energy so everything as you know in life is a circle uh birth is a circle the, the birth and, and the cycle of life the world the the the, the, uni the universe everything is is represented by the circle and um, um so this energy would leave the horse and come through me go up to grandfather sky down into uh mother earth back up to the horse through me grandfather sky and this builds and builds and builds and I have to know, too, when it's in my root chakra, I need to sort of be able to displace that energy and not contain it or hold it because it's too much for me. Mm -hmm. And I recall one day in the early days, uh, I had a big 2,000-pound horse. <laughs> 
And uh, for no reason, tears just started streaming down my face. I wasn't crying. I wasn't, I don't think I was, uh, I can't recall being necessarily, well, maybe I was sad, but I was taking on too much energy and I couldn't hold it, Jerry. Mm. I couldn't, I couldn't ground it. I couldn't displace it. And I had an elderly, uh, 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 elder woman come up to me and she got angry and told me if I was going to do this, I had better learn how to ground my energy better. <laughs> and she walked away. Um, so I learned a lot and I continue to learn. Um, I, I can never, ever say I will learn everything. I won't even scratch the surface in terms of what uh, big mammals can teach us. Um, I trained and worked with dolphins and seals. Um, I know their power um, and horses are just another example. Um, you know, so I became a survivalist, as your intro said, uh, living in um, survival uh, uh, zones of the Amazon or the jungle or the, uh, the Pacific Rim jungles and surviving in those jungles um, and, and, and learning how to survive and then coming back and not necessarily wanting to survive, but wanting to integrate, to actually integrate myself into the more than human world. Mm -hmm. And I would develop a, an integrity um, uh, sort of, the best example I give to people is, uh, it's hard to explain to them what it's like uh, taking a force therapy walk with the right intentions and opening up all your sensory codes but I, I can do it through, you know, have you ever seen a documentary called My Octopus Teacher? Oh, yeah. We, we, my, we, I, as I think you know, I live in community uh, right. here in Upstate New York. We all, we all watch that together. That, and that, Yeah, it's phenomenal. Well, I've, I've lived, I, I haven't quite lived his experience, but I've lived the kelp forest and, and lived and dove in them. Mm -hmm. And it is a forest. It's a virtual forest. It's, it's, it's a magical place. Uh, in a different way than a forest or evergreen forest, but it's still the same in many ways. So when I saw this octopus actually show, I mean, really show feelings and show emotions yeah. and, and attach itself. And so I use horses and other animals to tap into their emotion streams, their nervous system. And I do things with horses that most people say, you shouldn't do that. Um, because I'm intimately close with them. I'll do things to them or with them that most horses would not allow you to do. Uh, move them down, move them on the ground, lay on top of them, lay next to them, uh, close their eyes with your hands, cover their head, lay down on the grass with them. Um, uh, sleep uh, at, you know, I mean, the one thing I haven't done is just gone in the barn and, and, and strung up a hammock and sleep there for the night with my horse. And you know what, Jerry, I'll be doing that this spring. I will absolutely go in and string up a hammock and sleep with my horse. Um, it's, you know, when you make that conscious decision to um, have reciprocity with your environment and have that connection, that sacred connection of opening yourself up, uh, uh, transcending down to a level where everything you see is, I, I say to folks, I see better with my eyes closed than with them open. And it's, it's that way for me all the time. I can stand in a field. I can look at it with open eyes. I can transcend. I'm still seeing the field and I'm still walking through the field and touching the plants and things with my eyes closed. 
if I fall down, that's okay. But I mean, when you can visualize what is not, you're not able to use the, the sense of sight and you can still see and you can still feel and you can still taste and you, you can still get that intuition or you, or you really want to go off and, and, and go and uh, partner uh, with this more than human world in an imaginary sense um, where you develop relationships with certain animals there. And typically what I do, Jerry, is before I ever bring people out to a particular location, I sit there myself for about a month off and on probably two or three times a week for a month to two months. And what I'm doing is I'm sitting in the same spot, Jerry, just like that diver went to the same spot to meet his octopus teacher. Right. And I would go to the same place, Jerry, every, every other day. And the red bird would recognize me. And the red squirrel after a month and a half would recognize me. These animals flying by screeching at me, the red, red squirrels screaming at me from up above. And by month and a half into it, I'm sitting next to a big old white oak, uh, grandmother oak, you know, probably 200 years old. And red squirrel is four feet away from me, sharing my my treats. And the and the red bird is just about six feet away, sitting up on the on the on the uh, on the on the on the tree limb. And these are the same animals. This is the same red bird. This is the same red squirrel. They have accepted me and recognized me as part of their environment. And uh, question about all this. So um, when you first reached out to me. I was just doing some research uh, about, you know, just about who you were. And because I remember, I think you shared about some of the documentaries and things that you've been in. And I was just uh, reading about some of the struggles that you've had. I mean, first, you shared about the radioactive material that you have in the system right. and the, the PTSD and things like that. Right. And, and right. I, I remember reading on the uh, article, it said things about like having, I think, um, uh, arthritis and then there was a herniated disc. Like you, you've had like tremendous trauma physically and all kinds of levels happen and so what's what's really i think powerful about your story is how you're able to go into this work and ha share this perspective that you're sharing with me but at the same time like in the midst of like dealing with tremendous pain and suffering but like you're finding like a lot of laughter a lot of happiness and a lot of beauty and a lot of peace through doing this work with nature and with animals connecting with your nat uh, native american heritage and right so I, I just like uh, I mean, because this is something I just want to share and make people aware of that, like, you know, you're still carrying like this tremendous difficulty from like the time as you're uh, as you were a soldier. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. But it, and and really what I'm practicing is what the octopus was practicing on his on his uh, a subject, the octopus. The octopus was actually receiving something from his uh, from his diver friend uh -huh. and he was receiving something that was so foreign to it and it was so wonderful to it and it was so sacred to it not not the diver to, towards the octopus but the octopus towards the diver and what that tells you is that we are all connected we are all one right. i am rock i am sand i am water we are all water we're water based and um you know um you take away one element let's just say we take away our environment well, then we can't exist. We have to live uh, in a relationship together as a steward, us as a steward towards nature. And, and, and I, you know, I would always set my intention before taking a walk with people that typically did ask me, typically the people that I'm, I'm bringing on these walks, particularly during the pandemic, were the elderly. 
at 50 and over, 55 and over. And they were part of a university program of enlightenment and education. And I uh, approached the university and said I had a program that could be extremely beneficial to elderly that are kept inside, quarantined during the pandemic, uh, cannot leave their room. Mm. And a lot of folks signed up for this uh, outdoor slow forest therapy walk. And I'm, I'm working with people in the 60s, 70s, 80s. And it's profound because the wisdom that they have accumulated over the 60, 70, 80, 90 years is still, even to me today, being in my mid 60s, is still absolutely fascinating. And I have the most internal, utmost respect for these individuals, and they see it come across. Um, when I'm alone in my more than human world, I always set the intention with these words. I, I go through a freestyle Qigong movement, uh, connecting with what's in motion around me. And then I deliver the words of, I'm unable to perceive the shape of you. I find you all around me. Your presence fills my eyes and all my senses with your love. It humbles my heart for you are everywhere. And some of those words came from octopus teacher and some myself. And I couldn't find more poignant uh, words, uh, meaningful words, uh, to set my intentions right with Grandfather Sky, Mother Earth, and this, 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 this forest that I was asking to be accepted into. And it's an amazing thing. And if you practice it, this is where I'm referred to as a sensory code healer. If you practice it, you can actually practice the invitations on your own and tap into your various senses, which are like whiskers. Each of the sense, sight, feel, touch, imaginary, intuitive, heartfelt, these are all whiskers imagine on a, on a horse or on our fingers, our digits, same mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. If I touch something from, with this finger, it's different than this finger. Um, and when we use that example, where these use, utilizing these different senses, we're tapping into the nervous system. When we tap into the nervous system through thought alone and utilizing our senses, it travels through the nervous system to our brain and stimulates the nerve production of neurons. So I lose a half a million neurons today, but by practicing something like this combined with something else, and maybe with horses, I'm just saturating my nervous system with, uh, through my senses that stimulates new production of neurons in my brains and uh, singular brain. And uh, most folks would say, do you give, um, uh, recognition or uh, acknowledgement to these practices in allowing you to still be here today. And I say 1,000, 1,000 percent practicing these practices. Um, I, I don't practice everything. I practice what's synergistic, what's synergistic with my other practice. It's like uh, I use everything in my life and my brain and my vision is done in images every vision I've ever had is an image. So when I'm talking to people, I don't talk to them. I don't speak to them. I draw it on a whiteboard and I draw this magnificent scaled diagram 
and I explain what it is in words. And everyone is just like profoundly affected because it, it addresses everything within that environment at that time. So um, connecting I, with the outdoors is, uh, is, is really, along with my other practices, is what keeps me going. I think I think this is uh this is really powerful and this this is like um this idea that basically just through being open to to like the the fundamental experience of life and the present moment and the power yes. of nature is that yes. like people can heal themselves and what's what I really love about your story in particular is like I mean, you're just a living proof of that. You have a ra you said it's a, a radioactive material. I mean, all these 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 things are just yeah. like the doctor yeah. said you should have been you should have been gone a decade ago, and and here you are like full of life, and there's a joy coming through you and sharing all this. I mean, this is like I find this to be really powerful. That there's just, I think we were talking on the phone. You were saying something that like you know just through my thoughts alone. I've learned to bring healing to myself. And like, you yes. know, there's there's a lot of people uh, who become famous like Wim Hof or Joe Dispenza who talk yes. about like this very similar thing of just like, you know, just changing the mindset. And it, right. and like at the same time, like what you talk, what I love about your story too is it's like, it you know, there's no like, you can't fix things that happened in the past. No. But you can use them as a catalyst to growth. And then you also said another thing to me on the phone, which I love too, which is, you, you mentioned the podcast too, like when the the voice of the creator, the mystery comes down to you and says like, you know, it's not about you, right? right. Go, going into to bring this service to other people that there's a rejuvenating and restorative effect to that, that it doesn't just give uh, meaning and purpose, but it also brings healing to both sides. And like, I just, I just think right. like that, that message it, in itself is just powerful. Well, it's it's a it's a drug, Jerry. It's a, when you live it and experience it, and 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 you feel the effects of it. It, it there's no other word that comes to mind other than a drug. Uh, it's it's a it's an energy, uh, and not drug in a, in a, a derogatory way, but a uh, an energy that fills you. Like and, a medicine, right? Yeah. Oh, it, it's it's unbelievable. And and I think the words were, "It's not about you." It was about trying to explain to me that. If I could help someone else, I would be spending all my time helping that person and not focusing on my injuries and not focusing on my pain and not focusing on woe is me, but mm -hmm. focusing on this individual and seeing this. I've had people from all over the country call me, uh, not so much the individuals themselves, but I had mothers and fathers call me and they said, you know, is this Ralph Boy? I said, yes. And they'd say, uh, you don't know us. But well, we want to just tell you something. You saved our son's life. And I'm like, well, I don't know how I did that. And they said, your documentary, that one that's gone worldwide, uh, documentary that was documentary of the year in New York City in 2017, my son saw that documentary. And uh, he no longer wanted to kill himself. He was only a day or two away from ending his life. Was he a and soldier now, or something? Yeah, he was, he was a combat yeah. soldier. And he's doing, this, he's doing the same work you're doing with horses because he's been raised around horses and i and i had tears in my eyes i said that's the greatest gift that's the greatest gift i can receive now that energy that i just received just mm. washes over me and it does something to my organs it does something first to my nervous system then to my brain and my brain responds to the different senses to send receptors to those organs and heal those organs so this is very powerful and 
you know, someone said to me once, what if you couldn't help anybody ever again? I said, that'd be a very sad day. Mm -hmm. And they said, why? I said, then I wouldn't be able to give the gift, uh, a gift that I, I know I can give to someone um, to put them, to give them the purpose they're seeking, not to tell them what their purpose is, but to help them define their own purpose in life. There's only two important dates in, the, in our lives, just mm -hmm. two, only two dates. And sometimes I'll ask somebody, what are the two most important dates in your life? Of course, they say the day I was born, but they never get the second one correct. And I say, that's the, that's not, the second one is not the, is not the second most important date. The second most important date is for you to determine why you're here. Uh -huh. What is your purpose? And if you can't answer that question and you don't have purpose, I strongly urge that you try to find your uh, purpose through passion. Utilize passion, the word passion, to define your purpose. If you can define your passion and you're able to take it one step further and share that passion with one person, just one and change their life, you have defined your purpose. I mean, and that right there is like, that's what more needs to be said about it than that. I mean, this is, this is like, uh, it's beautiful the, stuff. The, the teachings in the Bhagavad Gita of all the native yeah. traditions. I mean, of all the traditions of just like, you know, um, how when we show up for others there there is like this the missing piece comes back for something for us and, and not from a selfish place from a place of compassion so and yes. and wisdom and service so Correct. um you know and there's one thing that it's it's really it's really fascinating too very synchronistic that you and i are having this conversation right now because it's i didn't even realize actually till i think this morning but it's veterans day in two days right that's correct so happy veterans day to you right <laughs> first of all and i mean uh, so then, you know, that what comes to my mind as we're having this conversation is, uh, I, I'm not, I don't know so much about it, but I, I know that like, you know, veterans suffer, um, from so many different afflictions in so many different situations. And I'm just wondering, what do you feel is something that the, like the civilians of the world could do more to support veterans? And also, as we know, like there's, there's mental health crisis that's affecting like the whole world right now, not just veterans too, but, but I, I'm thinking specifically of veterans because of Veterans Day and like, what is it like, you know, that we can do to show up and support more? I think, I think what uh, the relationship uh, between civilians and, and, and veterans has transcended to a much more complex, divided model uh it's not so much um civilians and veterans trying to understand one another and to somehow find a way to connect but i think it's people today now in the last several years from all walks of life that are walking in their own direction for their own causes and and struggling with opposing views and just trying to find a way of, can't we all just love? Can't we all just come together? Can't we all just shine and, and, and recognize that we are all one and, uh, and not be so divisive and not be so uh, split uh, on the important things in life. When you take away certain things in life, we call them critical essential elements. And in SEAL Team, we absolutely learned the definition of uh, essential element removal like right. I'm going to take away your oxygen, 
I'm going to put you in a box and keep you there for a week and uh, torture you. And these are things that we went through as training. And um, I'm not going to let you see daylight. I'm not going to let you feel the wind on your face. I'm not going to let you see the green forest. You can stare at these walls and you're going to stay here. Um, it's, it's, it gives you a sense, a, a profound sense of appreciation when you can just walk barefoot on the earth because you are part of that energy stream. And we, we really truly belong barefoot walking on this planet because we are just a ball of energy as the planet is. And we are just, um, you know, the only thing separating us and, and making us even more sick is that we wear shoes and we have rubber insulators between our feet and the earth's energy and our own energy. But I mean, sometimes just taking off your shoes, sitting on a bench in a park and just putting your feet into this, into the grass and just thinking about that, the grass and how it feels and most of the elderly population that I take on forest therapy walks, about halfway through the forest therapy walk, I see some of them crying mm. and tears running down their face when they're in, engaged in an in a, a invitation, maybe conversation with a tree or what's in motion, these different types of invitations I give out. And when they decide to share it, if they decide to share it in a talking circle, I'll have someone say, I just experienced something I haven't experienced in 62, 55 years. And I said, what is that? And they said, and they start crying. And I said, I think I know what it is, but I, I want you to take your time. And when you're ready, if you want to share it, you can share it. And every single person that I've encountered on different walks who's experienced this tearful, joyful experience will say the same thing. They'll say, I experienced after 40 years, after 55 years, the uh, uh, the sense of wonderment as as like a child of six years old when I was just a child and I was told to go outside and play but I didn't have any toys and I'd go outside and lay on the grass and I'd look at the blade of grass and I'd see a drop of dew on the end of that tip of that blade of grass and inside that drop of dew was a world of living things and I stepped into it and I looked into it I peered into it and I stepped into it and I was six years old and I was in a world of as big as this world, just a different type of world. And I looked at things with different eyes, eyes of a child. And now I'm hearing from these elderly folks in tears saying, it's like I was looking at things through the, I don't know how to say this. And I'm waiting and they go, like I was looking at things through the eyes of a child, the innocence, the vulnerability, the openness of just trying to recall what it was like to live in a world of wonderment. Mm -hmm. It's still out there. And when I asked mother nature, I said, did you ever give up on us? Mm -hmm. I have conversations. Did you ever give up on us? And they said, we came close many times, <laughs> but we're still here waiting for you. And if we're still here waiting for you, obviously we haven't given up on you yet. Yeah, I I mean that that to me uh that I feel like that that message in and of itself is a a great 
you, you know that message just needs to be spread as much as possible. I mean, people just real need to realize like that the 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 missing connection for what so many people are searching through for uh, for through things like social media or alcohol, drugs, right. all the, the substance abuse, all the things that proliferate mental illness and all the things that are leading people into obesity and stuff like that. It's really just like this fundamental connection with nature that brings us back into a place of harmony with the natural world. I mean, I was I was living I was tra I was traveling for many, many years before the uh, pandemic, but at the same time I was living in New York City as I was I don't know, travel come back to New York City and everything. And then right before the pandemic, I moved to upstate New York and just like you know that in of itself just living in the forest is just a mind-blowing experience i mean uh just yesterday driving back from the midwife we saw a bald eagle up in a tree you know right. i mean just i mean just right. and the power the power of that like all of a sudden you're just like oh my god there's a bald eagle there right right <laughs> and, yeah. and then and then uh a week a week prior to that hiking with my uh sister she came out to visit her two weeks prior and saw a like a five-foot rattlesnake and just like you know, th and those are kind of like you know peak experiences of nature, like see these like phenomenally powerful animals. But just like at the same time, being in the presence of the forest in and of itself is just right. like wow. It op it opens you in a way, to, and it makes you sensitive to things like you like the woman you're describing. All of a sudden, um, having this connection to like infinity through the the dewdrop in the grass and all of that, and right. um. You know what what's coming to me? The question I want to ask you here is like, what is the what's kind of like the legacy? of of all the life experiences you have because that's a pretty radical transformation i feel <laughs> to go it's from a, like you is. know the most hardcore soldier you know uh you know warrior lifestyle to then bringing people into like the beautiful delicacy and simplicity of like mother nature it's such a, it's such a radical and beautiful transformation like what what do you want um people to look back on you as like what is the story of like if you could summarize it what would you like people to meditate on as the legacy of your life if i could if i could ask such a question i, I would like them to meditate on the word strength yeah. and strength comes in many forms and the strength that i live today is not like the strength of the past the different forms of strength this particular strength <clears throat> is a much higher higher form of strength it's an ascension it's an absolute ascension to a much higher form of strength and strength through delicacy hmm. strength through humility hmm. strength through um uh, kindness uh strength through um uh, trust and and developing these virtues and Native Americans believe in these 17 virtues. And uh, they're powerful virtues. <clears throat> but, you know, on a walk one day with an elder, he said, Nah, sure. What do you know? We're walking through the woods. And he asked, What do you know? <laughs> and I said, uh, Well, you know, I know a little of this and a little of that and a little of this. And he said, Nah, sure. You don't know anything. <laughs> you don't know anything. He said, what do you want to know, Nashua? This is the important piece. He said, what would you like to know? I said, many things. He said, where would you need to go to learn these many things? I said, maybe read a book, read books. Maybe he said, Nashua, everything that you're seeking, all the knowledge that you seek, 
is right here. It's right here in the forest. The answer to any question you have can be found here. And by just <clears throat> um, transcending and uh, falling into a deeper state here to just basically um, reveal yourself, your soul and your energy to the more than human world in the presence that <clears throat> you are seeking this more than human world connection. And they can hear this. The Japanese believe uh, they practice Shinrin-yoku for, for physiological reasons and medical reasons. They know it cures cancer. They know it cures diabetes and high blood pressure and, and, and hundreds, dozens and dozens of other ailments that people suffer with. Um, here in Western culture, we tend to practice the, uh, the spiritual side of Shinrin-yoku uh, along while recognizing the medicinal benefits. We tend to uh, fall into more of a spiritual realm with uh, the Shinrin-yoku, as the Japanese do too. Um, and that's where, we, that's where we go with it. I think strength is the word, uh, Jerry. I think to uh, um, reach a point where you recognize there are different forms of strength. And sometimes weakness is not a strength, it's a strength itself, um, depending on the situation. Uh, knowing your uh, limitations and uh, things you can uh, uh, have an effect on and accepting those of which you can't, um, but trusting in something greater than yourself that can and just putting your hands in that greater than something than more something more powerful than yourself and putting your hands in that and having faith. Um, but, you know, how can we bring civilians and veterans closer together. I think we as people have to right now, and not so much focus there. I think we are trying to desperately find a way to reconnect with ourselves and with our neighbors and our friends and that were once friends or still our friends. And, right. and we're just becoming tribalized is the word they call it. And tribalization or becoming tribalized was used in the early 1960s in Vietnam uh, it was it was by design. Uh, other countries use it as a design tactic uh, to split and divide and tribalize different sects. And you see it particularly, uh, particularly strong in the Middle East where you have tribes. <clears throat> I never saw my country as being tribal mm -hmm. until the last four or five years. Sure. Tribal yeah. and aggressive and um, hostile and... Um, uh, unwilling to practice patience and humility in these virtues. And um, I'm flawed as I know we all are flawed in our own ways. Um, but I think we need to come together. I think we need to come together on a global scale, Jerry, on right. a global scale. Right. Yeah. This, I think that's, that's like one of the crucial things of people starting to realize like that there's not just like my, nuclear family there's not just uh like my american family or mm. like my white family or my black family or my asian family or my christian family or my muslim family or whatever you know it's like no there's my human family that's right <laughs> it's like and, right. That, and then that and that includes like the animals too that includes right. the forest like there's so this idea of like unity is what it, it sounds like are we're coming to we're coming to this like this crux of the matter is like we need to find a way to unite people 
and for us to feel a sense of like you know true connection like what you were talking about when you go on the missions with the seal team is that you know it's like you're my brother and i'm gonna bring you home and and bringing that feeling toward like sharing that to like the whole planet that's really what you're advocating at this moment right yeah absolutely and and just just uh, to be uh, uh, open-minded to um, uh, as best as one can be to um, individual choices and um, um, because you should have your own, we should each have what appeals to us and uh, not, uh, and not criticize and not judge um, just because we don't hold a particular worldview or similar worldview, um, but to recognize that we all have different worldviews and someone once said to me, they said, well, what I do, Rob, is, and, and as you know, I, I work with the Department of Mental Health here in the state, and I'm certified many years as a mental health wellness practitioner, as an intentional mm-hmm. peer support. I, I'm in uh, hearing voices, trained in that, worked in uh, England, worked in Australia, worked in Denmark uh, with <clears throat> folks in those countries. And um, um, this is powerful stuff. You know, someone had said to me, um, trying to recall that thought um and it was a uh, it was about uh, um it was about this worldview and that we have to accept each and every other person's worldview and respect that and um and i think uh, that goes a long way and um someone said to me, um, what I try to do with someone, Rob, is I try to find out a, a, something we may have in common. And that struck me, for me personally, that struck me funny because I don't try to seek what I have in common with someone else. I hope to find something different about someone else. <laughs> diversity then. And Celebrate when I diversity. find out some diversity, yeah, yeah it does. You, yeah. Nail on the head. Yeah. It's diversity. And, to, to find something else different about somebody else, it only enriches me. Uh, and I hope they're enriched by um, my experiences or whatever it is my, I may share. So I say to them, I say, I don't ask somebody, hey, what do we have in common? I say to people, <laughs> one simple question, when they're troubled or they're really in, in living in, in traumatic uh, days and times, mm-hmm. and they're thinking about suicide, and I'm sitting with them across the table, and I could ask them, what's your name? What do you do? Do you have a job? I don't care about any of that. And I don't even want to ask those questions. I'll look at the person that's troubled and contemplating suicide and everything else. And I say, can I ask you a question? And they'll say, sure, go ahead. <clears throat> Is there anything in your life from the time you were born to this time, this point in your life? Is there anything, anything at all? And I don't, I don't care how beautiful or crazy it is or unorthodox it is. Is there anything you're passionate about? And now I couldn't break through with this individual or many individuals until I asked this question. When I asked this question, their eyes light up. Their eyes get big and they look at me and they're like, is this a trick question? <laughs> and they say, well, I'm passionate about, I don't, I don't really want to say, but somehow I feel like I want to say it. I'm passionate about cooking. And I say, you know what? That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So you know what you could do? You know somebody that may be interested in that down the road. You bump into somebody and you have the gift of cooking. You could share that gift with somebody and change their life. 
I said, what's that sound like? He goes, I don't know. It's like you're giving me a job. I said, I'm not giving you a job, but you know what we're talking about? I said, I'm just, I'm describing your passion. That could be your purpose in life in offering this same gift to other people. And they in turn will offer you something you don't possess. Mm. And when we make these human, emotional, human, intimate exchanges with one another, not what do you do and do you have a job and do you have, do you have money? Do you work? Do you drive a car? Do you have a car? It's, it's just, what are you passionate about? Wow. You sound like, you sound like you're really, really in love with uh, this activity, what you're doing. It sounds like, uh, boy, I'm sure if someone bumped into you, there'd be somebody out there that would love to experience what you experience. And they're like, really? You think so? And I'm like, absolutely. You have a gift. You absolutely have a gift. And they start hearing words like gift and I have a gift and they're thinking, maybe this is something I would enjoy doing. Right. You know? Uh, that, yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's beautiful. I, I think um, living in community, I can, I can attest to the, the importance of what you're talking about. Just like these oh. simple moments where you just show up doing something for somebody and it's like, it, it, it brings life into life. That's the simplest way I can put it. And then when life comes into life, like all the yeah. all the crap that holds people down and holds us down, suddenly there's right. just like a replenishing of life that comes through us, and it's it, it it makes everything else tolerable. It makes it all worth going through it. You know, that's that's the magic of it. So, you know, Jerry, I'm I, you know, part of me is is envious that, um, and not in a bad way, that. <laughs> I haven't experienced um, what you experience in your community. And um, I would best describe it for myself as an internal community that I have with the outside world. And I just want to give it to folks. Um, creating that, uh, um, that following, if you will, and touching somebody's heart, um, because this was our first brain that we were ever given was the heart um and um and letting that person pass it forward to someone else um i don't take money but i do have a philosophy is uh, a program i have is i'll take a cup of coffee so people people say to me well if you don't take money how do i pass a, a cup of coffee through the screen to you mm-hmm. and i say well you come to my you come to my cup of coffee website and you watch some of my documentaries and you watch some of the work I do and a cup of coffee is three dollars so if you want to buy me a cup of coffee you can buy me a cup of coffee on my website and so they donate a cup of coffee they donate three dollars towards a cup of coffee (laughs) now I don't I don't use that money to buy coffee right I use that money to set up the next forest therapy walk for more people that have never experienced it because my goal is to get it to as many seniors, other uh, demographic groups. But right now I'm working with seniors through the university. I'm working with senior colleges. There are 12 or 13 senior colleges in this state. And I'm getting ready to offer that. Uh, come January, I, I offer the first winter forest therapy walk in the, in the winter period. This will be interesting because we're going to be examining snowflakes. <laughs> I mean, Excellent. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I like that. I like the idea of doing it in the winter. I think there's, there's a, the, 
it's important people experience not just the um the gentleness of spring and you know oh. like the pleasantry of summer but I, I and you can you would know what i mean by this as, as someone who's ex- done a lot of cold water as a navy seal but just the power and the fierceness of the cold of the cold to activate you know all the dormant parts of the mind and to bring you know life vitality through the circulation and just to, you know the cold opens you up in a powerful way i'm a big i'm a very big proponent of the cold water myself so but being, well, in, being outside is perfect too and I hope I can follow you on that. I, I spend a lot of my time here in Maine in the winter outdoors with horses. Uh, the William Hoff method is a very cool, uh, enticing method that I've uh, heard you mention, and I've read some things about it. Um, I think it would be something that I would truly, truly, truly uh, enjoy bringing into my wheelhouse. Cool. Uh, and and synchronizing it uh, with the other uh, practices that I do. Well, I, I hope I hope one day uh, if I get the chance to come up to Maine or if you get to come down here, we can do some nature immersion and uh, cold water swimming. We can we can make it a and, and combine some music in there, too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Cool. I love, uh, I love it. Before we before we end the interview, is there anything else that you just want to share that maybe we didn't touch on or just anything else that's coming to you that you just feel called to share to the listeners and anything else? Um, some of the most beautiful things in the world don't come easy. Um, they, uh, you just don't ask for it and whoosh, you got it. It's, it's put in your hands. Mm. Um, you have to have a divine, deep divine sense uh, and belief that if you practice something and you just practice it, something different happens each time and you practice it again. And just like the, uh, my octopus teacher he went out every day for 365 days. Right. And you know, and each day something new. He saw the life cycle. He saw the cycle of life. He saw a foreign, unconnected, living uh, uh, octopus express itself on him uh, intimately and emotionally and hug him. And I'm thinking, my goodness, if you can have an octopus hug you, Wow. Yeah. There's there's not a single thing out there that's considered living and that's that's everything we look at living. This everything is living. Trees are living. Trees feel. Um and when I talk to trees it's it's by permission and I'll have a conversation with the tree and the tree may say to me it's not me you want to talk to. It's a sapling, one of my children right beside me. Um fungi is the most amazing organism on the planet. And oh, fungi definitely. is, yeah. oh, it's, it's just absolutely crazy. And certain species of trees will take more than they need for the saplings. Uh, aspen is a good species of tree that will take so much water and store it for their young. Um, whereas a maple and an oak and, a, and, a, and, a, and an elm won't be able to take as much as this, this whole entire hillside of of aspen uh like you see in colorado and other places and what they're doing is they're preserving their future the legacy of uh the new seeds and the new young saplings that are coming and they're communicating this they're talking about the japanese study this they hang little sound detectors up in the trees and they record the sounds that trees make after the sun sets and the sounds are insane 
Yeah, there's uh, there's actually I was at a festival uh, in London one time a couple of years ago, and there's a woman from the community uh, Dominher in Italy, uh, really progressive. Uh, alternative consciousness type community and uh, for people who don't know and they um, were doing research where they were putting some kind of a device into fungi into plants yes and then they were getting like the sound readings coming back and each right. plant would have a different type of music that it would play and it was yes. like and it would and it would change like it, w- it yeah. was like they were literally like playing it they're sending a frequency back through the machine that would the plants would play so there's there's like the, there's definitely a higher intelligence within the power of 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 a lot of things that people ordinarily wouldn't subscribe intelligence to. But how how can we uh, set aside our ego, our egos, and accept the fact that there are higher forms of intelligence all around us? We just don't give them the, we don't accept it um, with this air of superiority uh, that uh, we have to be uh, the most powerful living structures on the planet. Uh, but yet I can't tell you what my horse is thinking. I can't read her mind, but my horse can read my mind. Mm-hmm. So really, who knows more? Me? Does Robert know more than the horse? Or is the horse more powerful than me? My horse knows 100 yards when I, before I get out of my car, 100 yards before I approach her barn, whether I'm in a good mood or not. And, and this is what your uh, Native American elder was trying to convey to you, right? When he was saying, "The forest can share with you everything you need." No, you just need to become quiet enough to to listen to it. Maybe yes. is what he's trying to say, right? Yes. Yeah. So I have to, I, if I'm having any mixed feelings at all, and I'm approaching my horses and I'm a hundred yards away, I have to stay where I'm at for a while, and I have to cleanse myself. I have to just, I have to just let it out, release it, um, because I'm approaching. I'm. 100 yards i'm 75 yards i'm 50 yards i'm 30 yards my horse is on high alert one day and my horse is on high alert because my horse is looking at me and saying what's wrong with you Mm. you know what's troubling you today and i realize ah i didn't clear myself i was bringing it to her and she can read it she can see it like visually see it so i have to i clear myself and and, and what I do, and, and I was demonstrating a clinic one day with my horse, and I said, I want to gentle my horse in front of you. I didn't know I'd take it this far, but what happened next surprised me as, as much as it surprised everyone else. I gentled my horse to a state where she closed her eyes. I gentled her where her ears just got soft and her, and, and her body just hung and her head was down. And I really know I've got her in a real gentled state, totally gentled. And then she collapses to the ground. Her front legs buckle and she lands on her knees. And she's so surprised by this. The horse was so surprised that she she stammered up and and kind of like, what just happened to me? And what happened was I just took her to such a relaxed state, um, almost a hypnotic state. And I was so deeply, intimately into her, connected with her, my brain with her brain, and then I realized maybe I shouldn't take her that deep and I should give her a heads up before she crashes in the ground again. <laughs> um, but people thought she was sick. They thought there was something physically wrong with her. I said, no, she fell asleep. Mm. She just fell asleep. I have, I have one more uh, 
I have one other question to ask you, because um, you were talking about um, the power of fungi, and we're talking about veterans, and there's been a lot of information about veterans with healing with psychedelic mushrooms and uh, other plants that you know used by the indigenous cultures, ayahuasca right. and things like that. Right. What is what has been? What's your thoughts about that? Do you feel like that's a good direction? Get, being a veteran and working with a lot of veterans, what do you feel? Uh, well, about I can't that? speak for I can't speak for. Um, I, I really don't like to speak for veterans in terms of this would be good or wouldn't be good for veterans. Right. I say for people in general, um, I think the, uh, I think exploring this allows us, allows the individual to tap into so much more of the brain areas of the brain that not even being reached. And when we can do that, uh, we can better understand, have a deeper sense of things uh, certainly a deeper sense of with compassion and empathy. Um, and from there, I think in practicing this, you should go slow and you should have a guide. Right. Someone who's well-versed with this and can guide you, kind of walk you through the forest, you know, side by side and walk you through slowly. And you experience things uh, on, a, on a, like a, like a forest therapy uh, walk, very slow and with the, openness and right intentions for anything you want to experiment um and not everything's perfect and maybe this is not the right thing but maybe this is and this is and it just opens up just just beyond your normal reach so uh i'm I'm open to that um i'm selective not just anything goes Right, of course. I'm, I'm selective, and uh, if it uh, uh, if it works for me, great. If I have a negative and a negative from it, then I say maybe this is not for me, and that's okay. Um, but for someone else, it may be perfect. So we to each our own, and 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 we all um, we all have a different fingerprint as to who we are, and uh, what works for us and what doesn't work for us, and. If we can uh, just come to understand that and that we are all one while we are all unique in our own ways, um, maybe we can discover how to use uh, the art of um, complementary pairing, you know, where we can pair together and see the complementary um, um, uh, benefits of you're different, I'm different, you're beautiful, I'm beautiful, I feel beautiful, you feel beautiful, I think you're beautiful, uh, I, I encourage you, I support you as best I can, and um, uh, it's not an easy thing, I'm not, I'm not, not professing that this is an easy uh, path to follow, but like the word I used earlier, you either have to, you have to practice it, and if it's practicing with people, that's tricky and if it's pat if it's practicing in a in a in a different environment like i do with the more than human world it gives me a much clearer sense of how to deal with humans when i work with animals and i work with nature and i'm i'm invited in and part and, and becomes um, um liquid and with all of that then i can look back at uh, just offering it uh, to someone and having a conversation with someone and someone's people have asked me everyone you speak to they all do they all get it i say no no they don't they don't all get it you know uh well 
is aren't you happy unless they all get it? I said, I hope people get it. But if I have 10 people, maybe two will get it. Maybe two will practice and they'll practice and they'll practice and they'll practice. And they'll say, I'll never let another day go by for the rest of my life without incorporating this into my life daily, uh, daily, daily involvements, uh, uh, every other day, every few days, but making it a part of my life for the rest of my life. Hmm. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, thank you so much for sharing all this. I mean, this is, uh, I, I, I still, I'm, I'm really happy that this synchronized with Veterans Day. I just think there's something really powerful about that. And it's like the universe well, wanted the story to be heard all the way through. So at the right moment where people will really be receptive, I think, to be, to wanting to hear these kind of, um, the transformation that you've been through and how you've used the struggles and the adversity to help people and bring strength and help bring this healing divide that we desperately need from culture to, to nature. And like, if, if that's not the work, I don't know what it is. So, and I would, I would just add, uh, Jerry, that, um, never stop looking to reinvent yourself, to build yourself, to grow and to use, uh, what your tools are and what you have and what you're doing and to recognize something because the signs are all around us. Sometimes some people, we, some of us can see the signs, others, they can walk right by them. And a lot of times I'll see signs and I'll hit my brakes or I'll see signs and I'll have to pull out a pad and write these words down. I'll see these signs. I'll hear these signs. But um, to just be open to that and, um, um, you know, this could be a lifestyle change for many people. Thank you, Jerry, for your time. Same here, my friend. I hope to talk to you soon. All right. We will be in touch. Beautiful. Love you, brother. Much love, Robert. Thank you so much. And to and, uh, hear this story is very powerful. So thank you so much for sharing.